Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your rear and host, Mark Braun, here. Glad you could join us today. Well, so, uh, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print-impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Alright, let's start off with a couple of obituaries. This first one is from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 12, 2023. Hal Levin, October 6, 1941 to February 21, 2003, author unknown. Hal Levin, a pioneer and leader in the field of indoor air quality and building ecology, died in Leveno, Italy, on February 21, 2023. Hal was born in Portland, Oregon. On October 6, 1941, the son of Molly Schnitzer and Le Molly Schnitzer Levin and Bernard Levin. After his father returned from World War II, the family moved to Beverly Hills, California. Hal's lifelong love of baseball began there, as he played from Little League through high school. He attended Cornell University before transferring to the University of California at Berkeley, pitching on both baseball teams. He continued to pitch throughout his life and pitched in senior leagues until he was 77 years old. He was a volunteer in the Peace Corps in Columbia from 1966 to 68. After returning from the Peace Corps, he graduated from Cal with degrees in architecture and English. For the next several years, he worked at the Organization for Social and Technological Innovation and Building Systems De uh, Development, working on affordable and sustainable housing. Hal moved to Boulder Creek, California in 1973 and built houses. He was a research specialist at the College of Environmental Design at UC Berkeley, where he taught budding, uh, budding architects about the need to understand the realities of constructing the things they, that they design. In 1972, he founded the Building, e Building Ecology Research Group. In 1977, then-Governor Jerry Brown appointed Hal as a public member of the California State Board of Architectural Examiners, a position he held until 1985 and was president of the board in 1983 and 84. <clears throat> as a member of the board, he held hearings on sick building syndrome. These hearings uh, ignited the, his interest in indoor air quality and the ecology of buildings. He was early to recognize the need for and value of examining the toxicity of building materials and systems used in their construction and operation. His work focused on the integration of, of knowledge about indoor and outdoor air pollution, as well as other risk factors into the design, construction, and operation of residential and commercial buildings and communities. Howe was the president of the Indoor Art Institute and a principal in Building Ecology Research Group. He was a prolific author on the subject of indoor air quality. He was engaged by many institutions as a lecturer, research scientist, architect, and consultant throughout the world. These included Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, UC Davis, the University of California, the State of California, the National Institutes of Health, the World Health Organization, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. He lectured extensively all over the world, and uh, all he, he lectured all uh, all over the world and taught at UC Berkeley, UC Santa Cruz, and Harvard University. 
Howe was a member of many organizations, including the American Society for Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers, which gave him its Distinguished Service Award, American Society for Testing Materials, which gave him its Award of Merit, and the International Society of Indoor Air Sciences. He was the president of Indoor Air 2002, organizing the 9th International Conference on Indoor Air Quality and Climate held in Monterey, California in 2002. In 2018, at the 15th International Conference, Howe was given the Lifetime Service Award for his exceptional contributions to indoor air sciences. Howe's influence in the field was profound. He recognized the gaps in his knowledge of an evolving field, the result of which was the extent to which uh, he pressed himself and others to stretch their own efforts to make buildings increasingly healthy and sustainable. Among his strengths was an ability to help his students and colleagues find both voice and encouragement where it had been absent. As one colleague said, he made me a better person. Similar reflections like a better researcher, a better professional, a better carpenter are a few of the expressions from his many friends and colleagues. Having developed an interest in South American music while in the Peace Corps, Hal hosted a show on Santa Cruz Public Radio Station KUSP for 18 years. Hal was a vegetarian for 50 years and enjoyed organic gardening. In 2003, Hal met the love of his life in uh, Machariata Talachini, a law professor and ethicist in Milan, Italy. They were married in 2004 and shared a bicentennial, bicentennial marriage for the next 15 years. In 2019, he concluded that it was time to retire and, with their dog, Aki, moved to Reno de Leguino, Italy, by Lake Maggiore so that he could be with Maria Ciria full-time. Sadly, Howe was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in April 2020 and his health declined rapidly. In addition to his wife, Hal is survived by his sisters, Ellen Jacobs, Martin, and Nancy Levin, Daniel Caraco, his nephews, Joel Jacobs, Denise Wolf, and Joshua Caraco, his niece, Margie Jacobs, Andrew Seplow, great nieces and cousins, and Aki. Hal's parents and his nephew, Benjamin Caraco, predeceased him. The family requests that donations in Hal's memory be made to the Ben Caraco slash Scott Stapleton Scholarship Fund at the College Preparatory School in Oakland, California, the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, or the Natural Resources Defense Council. That was Hal Levin, October 6, 1941 to February 21, 2023, author unknown from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 12, 2023. All right, here is a second one from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 14, 2023. Kim Simon, September 15, 1970 to February 28, 2023, author unknown. It is with great sadness that we announce the passing of Kim Simon, 52, on February 28, 2023, from multiple system atrophy, a progressive neurodegenerative disease. The daughter of Dr. Dan and Ruth Hillman, Kim was born and raised in Malibu, California. She graduated from Windward High School and received a bachelor's degree in history with honors from Colorado College. Kim lived in Prague, tracing her family's roots, and in 1994, 
joined Steven Spielberg's Survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation, whose mission was to videotape and preserve interviews with survivors and witnesses of the Holocaust. Kim's tenure at the foundation spanned 28 years as the archive ex uh, expanded to include other genocides that occurred. Today, the archive contains 55,500 interviews from 65 countries in 44 languages. Uh, Kim enjoyed skiing and became an avid runner. She delighted in times with her husband and two daughters who shared her love of travel. A consummate host to guests from around the world, she was known for choosing the perfect gift for any recipient. Kim was survived by her husband, Yus Simon, daughters Eva and Lily, mother Ruth Hillman, sisters and brothers-in-law uh, Karen and Zeb Freed and Jana and Sam Gustman, nieces Ali, Ali Mayer, Jared, Lucy Freed and Justin Gustman, and nephews Jake Freed and Henry Freed. She will be deeply missed. The funeral was held March 2nd, 2023 in Los Angeles. Donations in her memory may be made to the USA Shoah Foundation. Uh, give to.usc.edu. That's G-I-V-E-T-O dot That was Kim Simon, September 15, 1970 to February 28, 2023. From the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 14, 2023. Alright, we have one Israel story here from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 12, 2023. Saudi-Iran deal worries Israel shakes up Mideast. The rapprochement is a blow to Netanyahu. In Yemen, both sides express a bit of hope. By Isabel Debris and Sami Magdi. Jerusalem. News of the rapprochement between longtime regional rivals Saudi Arabia and Iran sent shockwaves through the Middle East on Saturday and dealt a symbolic blow to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has made the threat posed by Tehran publicly, a public diplomacy priority and personal crusade. The breakthrough, a culmination of more than a year of nego negotiations in Baghdad and more recent talks in China, also became ensnared in Israel's internal politics, reflecting the country's divisions at a moment of national turmoil. The agreement, which gives Iran and Saudi Arabia two months to reopen their respective embassies and reestablish ties after seven years of rupture, more broadly represents one of the most striking shifts in Middle Eastern diplomacy over recent years. In countries like Yemen and Syria, long caught between the Sunni kingdom and the Shiite powerhouse, the announcement stirred cautious optimism. In Israel, it caused disappointment, along with finger-pointing. One of Netanyahu's greatest foreign policy triumphs remains Israel, Israel's U.S. brokered normalization deals in 2020 with four Arab states, including Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. They were part of a wider push to isolate and oppose Iran in the region. He has portrayed himself as the only politician capable of protecting Israel from Tehran's rapidly accelerating nuclear program and regional proxies, like Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Israel and Iran have also waged a regional shadow war that has led to suspected Iranian drone strikes on Israeli-linked ships ferrying goods in the Persian Gulf, among other attacks. A normalization deal with Saudi Arabia, the most powerful and wealthy Arab state, would fulfill Netanyahu's prized goal, 
reshaping the region and boosting Israel's standing in historic ways. Even as backdoor relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia have grown, the kingdom has said it won't officially recognize Israel before a resolution to the decades-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Since returning to office late last year, Netanyahu and his allies have hinted that a deal with the kingdom could be approaching. In a speech to American Jewish leaders last month, Netanyahu described a peace agreement as a goal that we are working on in parallel with the goal of stopping Iran. But experts say the Saudi-Iran deal that was announced Friday has thrown cold water on those ambitions. Saudi Arabia's decision to engage with its regional rival has left Israel largely alone as it leads the charge for diplomatic isolation of Iran and threats of a unilateral military strike against Iran's nuclear facilities. The UAE also resumed formal relations with Iran last year. It's a blow to Israel's notion and efforts in uh, recent years to try to form an anti-Iran bloc in the regime in the region, said Yoel Gozansky, an expert on the Persian Gulf at the Institute for National Security Studies, an Israeli think tank. If you see the Middle East as a zero-sum game, which Israel and Iran do, a diplomatic win for Iran is very bad news for Israel. Even Danny Dannon, a Netanyahu ally and former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, who recently predicted a peace agreement with Saudi Arabia in 2023, seemed disconcerted. This is not supporting our efforts, he said, when asked about whether the, re the rapprochement hurt chances for the kingdom's recognition of Israel. In Yemen, where the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran has played out with the most destructive consequences, both warring parties were guarded but hopeful. A Saudi-led military coalition intervened in Yemen's conflict in 2015, months after the Iran-backed uh, Houthi militias seized the capital, Sana'a, in 2014, forcing the internationally recognized government to exile in Saudi Arabia. The Houthi rebels, H-O-U-T-H-I, welcomed the agreement as a modest but positive step. The region needs the uh, return of normal relations between its countries through which the Islamic society can regain security lost from foreign interventions, said Houthi spokesman and chief negotiator Mohammed Abdullah Salam. The Saudi-backed Yemeni government expressed some optimism and caveats. The Yemeni government's position depends on actions and practices, not words and claims, it said, adding that it would proceed cautiously until observing a true change in Iranian behavior. Analysts did not expect an immediate settlement to the conflict, but said direct talks and better relations could create momentum for a separate agreement that may offer both countries an, ex an exit from a disastrous war. The ball is now in the court of the Yemeni domestic warring parties to prioritize Yemen's national interest in reaching a peace deal and be inspired by this initial positive step, said Afra Nasser, a non-resident fellow at the Washington-based Arab Center. Anna Jacobs, senior Persian Gulf analyst with the International Crisis Group, said she believed the deal was tied to a de-escalation in Yemen. It is difficult to imagine a Saudi-Iran agreement to resume diplomatic relations and reopen embassies within a two-month period without some assurances from Iran and, more seriously, support 
uh, conflict resolution efforts in Yemen. War-scarred Syria similarly welcomed the agreement as a move toward easing tensions that have exacerbated the country's conflict. Iran has been a main backer of Syrian President Bashar Assad's government, while Saudi Arabia has supported opposition fighters trying to remove him from power. In Israel, bitterly divided and gripped by mass protests over plans by Netanyahu's far-right government to overhaul the judiciary, politicians seized on the rapprochement between the kingdom and Israel's archenemy as an opportunity to criticize Netanyahu, accusing him of focusing on his personal agenda at the expense of Israel's international relations. Opposition leader Yar Lapid denounced the agreement as a full and dangerous failure of the Israeli government's foreign policy. That was Saudi-Iran deal worries Israel shakes up Mideast by Isbel Debris and Sami Magdi from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 12, 2023. Debris and Magdi write for the Associated Press. All right, now here's something here in the U.S. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 14, 2023. Cohen testifies before grand jury probing hush money. Former Trump lawyer answers questions about payouts to two women he arranged on his client's behalf by Michael R. Sisak. New York. Donald Trump's former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, testified Monday before a Manhattan grand jury investigating hush money payments he arranged and made on the former president's behalf. A Trump loyalist turned adversary, Cohen spent about three hours answering questions in the secret proceeding. He is scheduled to return again for more testimony Wednesday, his lawyer said, as the pair emerged from the courthouse. Michael has spent a long and productive afternoon answering all questions all facts and completely responsive, said Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis. The testimony comes at a critical time as the Manhattan District Attorney's Office weighs whether to seek charges against Trump over payments made during the 2016 campaign to two women who alleged affairs or sexual encounters with him. Before, encountering the court, before entering the courthouse for the session, Cohen, who orchestrated those payoffs, said his goal was simply to tell the truth, dismissing a suggestion that he might be motivated by a desire to see Trump behind bars. This is not revenge, he said. This is all about accountability. He needs to be held accountable for his dirty deeds. Trump denies being involved with either of the women, the porn actor Stormy Daniels and model Karen McDougall. Cohen has given a prosecutor's evidence, including voice recordings of conversations he had with a lawyer for one of the women, as well as emails and text messages. He also has recordings of a conversation in which he and Trump spoke about an arrangement to pay the other women through the supermarket tabloid, the National Enquirer. Prosecutors appear to be looking at whether Trump committed crimes and how the payments were made or how they were accounted for internally at Trump's company. The Trump Organization. One possible charge would be falsifying business records, a misdemeanor unless prosecutors could prove it was done to conceal another crime. No former U.S. president has ever been charged with a crime. Appearing on Mon Monday on ABC's Good Morning America, Trump lawyer Joseph Takopina said it is unlikely the former president will accept an invitation extended by prosecutors last week to testify before a grand jury. We have no plans on participating in this proceeding, Takopina said. 
It's a decision that needs to be made still. There's been no deadline set, so we'll wait and see. He characterized Trump as a victim, saying he was pressured into making the payments to Daniels. This was a planned, ex plan, a planned extortion, and I don't know since when we decided to start prosecuting extortion victims, Takopina said. He's denied, vehemently denied this affair. But he had to pay money because there was going to be an allegation that was going to be publicly embarrassing to him, regardless of the campaign. Daniels and the attorney, who helped arrange the payment for her, Keith Davidson, have both denied extorting anyone. Takopina is also accusing the Manhattan District Attorney's Office of prosecutorial misconduct, writing in a letter to the New York City's Inspector General that prosecutors are trying to hamper Trump's chances in the 2024 presidential election. Takopina asked the city's Department of Investigation to probe a patently political prosecution. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office declined to comment. Trump's lawyers have tried several times to get judges in New York and Florida to intervene in or halt investigations of Trump and the Trump Organization, arguing that they are politically motivated. All of those attempts have failed. Cohen served prison time after pleading guilty in 2018 to federal charges, including campaign finance violations, for arranging the payouts to Daniels and McDougal to keep them from going public. He has also been disbarred. Trump's lawyers could point to those factors in an attempt to undermine Cohen's credibility if the former president is charged and Cohen ends up testifying at trial. Cohen has been meeting regularly with Manhattan prosecutors in recent weeks, including a day-long session Friday to prepare for his grand jury appearance. The panel has been hearing evidence since January and what Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, a Democrat, has called the next chapter of his office's years-long Trump investigation. But the hush money payments are familiar ground. Federal prosecutors and Bragg's predecessor in the District Attorney's office, Cyrus Vance Jr., each scrutinized the payments but didn't charge Trump. Cohen declined to comment to reporters as he left the meeting, saying he'd take a little he'd be taking a little bit of time now to stay silent and allow the DA to build their case. Trump continued to lash out at the probe on social media on Friday, calling the, the case a scam, injustice, mockery, and complete and total weaponization of law enforcement in order to affect a presidential election. Cohen paid Daniels $130,000 through his own company and was then reimbursed by Trump, whose company logged the reimbursements as legal expenses. McDougal's $150,000 payment was made through the publisher of the National Enquirer, which squelched her, uh, her story in a journalistically dubious practice known as Catch and Kill. According to federal prosecutors who charged Cohen, the Trump Organization then grossed up Cohen's reimbursement for the Daniels payment for tax purposes, giving him $360,000 plus a $60,000 bonus for a total of $420,000. That was Cohen testifies before a grand jury probing hush money by Michael R. Sisak from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 14, 2023. Sisak writes for the Associated Press. Okay, back uh, locally, uh, we have this one from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 14, 2023. 
swastikas discovered at Stanford dorm. An image of Hitler was also drawn on a board outside a Jewish student's room by Nathan Solis. Stanford University is investigating a possible hate crime after swastikas and an image of Adolf Hitler were drawn on a whiteboard outside a Jewish student's dorm room, the third such incident in the last two weeks. The student discovered the drawings Friday, the university said. It was the latest of several reported acts of vandalism that included anti-Semitic symbols and language at Stanford this academic year, Vice, uh, Vice Provost for Student Affairs Susie Brubaker Cole said in a statement. Brubaker Cole condemned the incident and called it a brazen threat to an individual student on campus. We wish to be clear, Stanford wholeheartedly rejects anti-Semitism, racism, hatred, and associated symbols, which are reprehensible and, we will, not, and will not be tolerated, Brubaker Cole said. The university's Department of Public Safety is investigating the incident, which spawned two reports from students in the dormitories. Because the images could have been used to intimidate the Jewish student, they are being investigated as a possible hate crime and the person responsible could be subject to legal or disciplinary action, according to the university. The student whose dorm room was targeted spoke to the Stanford Daily, the university's student newspaper, about the vandalism. It's really making this living situation feel pretty hostile to me, said the student, who, declared, who declined to be identified, fearing harassment. It's very unsettling, thinking that I was in my room sleeping and someone was outside my door doing this. Students who live in the dormitory, Florence Moore Hall, will meet Tuesday to discuss the effect on the community and what steps could be taken to address the fallout. Officials do not believe this incident is related to two reported hate crimes on February 28 and March 3rd in which swastikas and hateful language were scratched into a metal panel and on the wall of two men's bathrooms. Those incidents were classified as hate crimes under California's penal code, though no suspect was identified, Stanford officials said. Vandalizing property, particularly with words intended to threaten and intimidate individuals, specifically in this case black and Jewish communities, is contrary to Stanford's values. The university said in a, state, the university said in a statement, it is absolutely unacceptable in our community. That was Swastikas Discovered at Stanford Dorm by Nathan Solis from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 14, 2023. All right, there's another one from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, March 15, 2023. L.A. County Won't Retry Weinstein in Sexual Assaults by James Queeley. Los Angeles County prosecutors will not seek to retry Harvey Weinstein in the sexual assault of two women, including Jennifer Siebel Newsom, after a jury hung on those uh, charges last year, prosecutors announced Tuesday. After a two-month trial, in which he was accused of raping four women in hotels between 2004 and 2013, Weinstein was convicted in December of sexually assaulting an Italian model and actress following a film festival in Beverly Hills. Jurors acquitted Weinstein of assaulting a massage therapist and deadlocked on charges that he assaulted Lauren Young, a former actress who also testified against him in New York, and Siebel Newsom, who was an actress when she alleged, when she alleged he attacked her in a hotel room in the mid-2000s. 
The Times typically does not identify victims of sexual assault, but Siebel Newsom, the wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom, and Young have either testified against Weinstein in public court settings or identified themselves in media accounts. Weinstein was sentenced to 16 years in a California prison last month. Combined with the 23-year sentence he received after being convicted of rape in New York in 2020, the disgraced Hollywood mogul, who was 70 and in poor health, is all but assured to spend the rest of his life in prison. Young appeared in court Tuesday and asked prosecutors to retry her case. Siebel Newsom, however, submitted a statement asking the district attorney's office not to pursue a second trial on her allegation. The first partner's primary intention is coming forward was, uh, in coming forward was to ensure that Weinstein spends the rest of his life in prison. While the jury could not reach a, a verdict on the charges relating to her experience, we believe that her testimony, in chorus with other brave victims' testimonies, led to Weinstein's conviction and the 16-year sentence he faces in California after he serves his New York sentence, uh, her her attorney, Elizabeth Vegan, said in a statement. Had the court uh, not handed down a fitting sentence, Vegan said, my client would have been ready to support the prosecutors if they opted to retry Weinstein, even considering the enormous emotional toll it would inflict on her. Deputy District Attorney Paul Thompson, the lead prosecutor on the case, said Weinstein would have faced only an additional year in prison if convicted on the count related to Young's allegation. Weinstein will now be returned to custody in New York where he is still appealing his conviction, according to his attorney, Mark Worksman. Judah Engelmayer, Weinstein's spokesman, called the prosecutor's decision Tuesday an important step toward Harvey Weinstein's appeal in L.A. Now he and his team can focus on Jane Doe 1's claim alone, of which there is ample support and proof that corroborates Harvey's claims that it never happened, Engelmayer wrote in an email. That was LA County Won't Retry Weinstein and Sexual Assaults by James Queeley from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, March 15, 2023. Now staying local, we're going to turn to a couple of articles from the Valley Vantage for March 16, 2023, Volume 41, Number 1, A Compendious Source of Information. And uh, from the Community section, this is called Holocaust Art and History Project at CSUN. Author Unknown. David Labkovsky survived the brutal Siberian Gulag as a prisoner under Stalin during World War II. His visual diary describing his physical an emotional experience will be on display at CSUN in the Hillel 818 building, March 26 through April 28. The over 400 pieces of artwork created by narrative artist and storyteller David Labovsky, 1906-1991, enables Holocaust history and the effects of totalitarian regimes, along with man's inhumanity, to man to be shared in a way that personally speaks to audiences of all ages and backgrounds. Labkovsky's work shares human emotion, resilience, and the human toll of hatred and anti-Semitism. The traveling art exhibit, documenting history through art curated by the nonprofit David Labovsky Project, educates about the dangers of discrimination and hate, shared Lior Rakim, founder and executive director. 
by engaging viewers with his paintings and sketches, the David Lepkowski project shares lessons of life, survival, tolerance, acceptance, and the importance of bearing witness to history. For information, visit davidlepkowski.org. Lepkowski. That was Holocaust Art and History Project at CSUN, author unknown, uh, from the Valley from the Valley Vantage section. Valley Vantage publication, that is. Okay, here's another story from the business section of Valley Vantage. And uh, this is called Blumenfield Brings Bass Inside Safe to West Valley by Bob Blumenfield. Last week, we brought Mayor Bass's homelessness initiative Inside Safe to the West Valley. With funding approved from the city council, the mayor has been working closely with council members and local service providers to help bring people from the entire encampments into hotels and transitional housing. This is a strategy we've been using in the 3rd District for a while, and it has been great to see more of it applied citywide. Our recent effort was conducted along the entire length of the Los Angeles River in the 3rd District from Owensmouth to Lindley, to Lindley, with 44 people moving into motel rooms. The success of this effort was in large part due to the fact that we had rooms available at a nearby hotel, a bus available to take folks right then and there, a coordinated outreach effort, and people knew that we were making the river off-limits to camp encampments on March 17 via a 41.18 designation so that the status quo would no longer be an option. This model works outreach uh, services, persistence, and housing. I'd like to share a little more about what happens with our Inside Safe effort, how it came about, and how we can build on the success in the future. Especially when it rains, the LA River is an unsafe place for people to set up encampments. And for years, I have been working to offer better options for people who have resorted to living in, the, in this flood-controlled area and along the bike path. I am so pleased and grateful that Mayor Bass and the Inside Safe team were able to pull together the safety, the sa uh, to safely move people indoors and help them get on the path to housing. This effort was led by Hope the Mission, the service provider for the two uh, cabin communities, tiny home programs in our district, and incorporated uh, their multidisciplinary team. Teams from LAHSA, Hope the Mission, and the San Fernando Valley Community Mental Health Center, as well as members of Team Blumenfield, conducted weeks of proactive outreach along with rangers from the Mountains Recreation and Conservation Authority who provide naturalists and patrol along the river. The area of the LA River in our district includes many storm drain outlets, some of which have been used for habitation and are particularly dangerous when they are filled with water. Additionally, the street underpasses along the river have been used for shelter and storage, creating dangerous conditions above the bike path and potentially destabilizing the roads above when individuals dig in underneath the roadbed to create a cave-like shelter. In addition to the flood control issues, the river has limited access points, which means anyone experiencing an emergency in this area is difficult to reach by first responders. The LA River historically has been a tricky place to offer homeless services because there are so many governmental jurisdictions involved. The city, county, state, 
Army Corps of Engineers, and Metro are all responsible <coughs> for different components of the river, and this can lead to red tape and slowed progress. Our partner and co-founder of the LA River Walkers and Watchers, Evelyn Alleman, has been leading cleanups along the river for years and knows this all too well. For seven and a half years, during our monthly river cleanups, we've tried to connect our unsheltered in the area with resources, but I've always felt it wasn't enough. We're excited and hopeful that this collaboration between Councilmember Bloomingfield, the Mayor's Inside Safe program, and our community will turn things around for so many people who need this level of outreach, care, and support. While I am heartened uh, by seeing this level of collaborations and swift pro progress, we must continue to push for more resources and help. Over my years of doing homeless outreach, I know that if you have housing at your fingertips, people will accept help. Even though she has been in office just a few months, Mayor Bass has been incredibly effective and collaborative. Together, we've already started cutting through some of that burdensome red tape, and this sort of progress must continue. As always, if you have any city-related issues, please reach out to my team and I at co3.4u at lacity.org. That's letter C, 03.4u at lacity.org. That was Blumenfield Brings Bass Inside Safe to West Valley by Bob Blumenfield from the business section of Valley Vantage a compendious source of information for March 16, 2023, Volume 41, Number 1. Getting back to the LA Times here, here's a couple of articles from the sports section. First from the Los Angeles Times sports section, Sunday, March 12, 2023, Schifrin captures record for wins by, from Times staff and Wire reports. Two minutes after earning her 87th career win, Michaela Schifrin, finally understood the significance of setting the record for World Cup victories. In the middle of the awards ceremony, a man in a red jacket unexpectedly stepped forward from the crowd, and that was the moment Schiffen first realized what it all meant to her. It was her brother Taylor, who secretly had flown into Sweden and now came over to hug her. I've said it the whole time, I don't know how to define that, Schiffen said about the record. When you have these special moments, seeing my brother and sister-in-law, Christy, and my mom and coach, Eileen, in the finish today, that's what makes it memorable. Schifrin set the outright World Cup record for career victories by winning a slalom Saturday, breaking a tie with Ingemar Stenmark on the all-time list of men and women. The Swede competed in the 1970s and 80s. Pretty hard to comp comprehend, said Schiffman, who crouched and rested her head on her knees after finishing the final run. That was Schiffman Captor's record for wins from Time Stuff and Wire Reports from the Los Angeles Times Sports section, Sunday, March 12, 2023. Here is a follow-up article. This is from the Los Angeles Times Sports section for Sunday, March 19, 2023. Schiffman matches Vaughn for podium finishes from Wire Reports. Michaela Schifrin uh, equaled Lindsey Vaughn's women's record for most career World Cup podiums with her 137th after taking third place in the slalom at the World Cup finals in Soldu, Andorra. Racing for the second time since breaking Ingemar Stenmark's career Alpine wins record, Schifrin finished behind Petra Vihova, 
who used a frenetic finish on her decisive run to prevail ahead of Croatian prodigy Leona Popovich. Shiflin is finally able to hold and kiss the crystal globe for the best slalom skier of the Women's Cup season. Trophies in ski racing are traditionally handed only over the final week of the season. It's the sum of a lot of hard work and many amazing races and the work of the whole team, said Schiffrin, who will be after her 14th win of the season and 88th in total in Sunday's Giant Slalom, the last race of the season. I'm very thankful and very proud. Marco Odermatt broke the 23-year-old male record for most World Cup points in a season when the Swiss standout won his last race of the season, the Giant sl uh, Slalom. That was Schiffrin matches Vaughn for podium finishes from Wire Reports uh, out of the sports section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, March 19, 2023. Okay, on to some entertainment news from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 12, 2023. Finding Refuge in L.A. Kathleen Shine's new novel is a love letter to the city's emigres by Bethany Patrick. The novelist Kathleen Shine feels comfortably ensconced in Venice, nestled in a craftsman bungalow on a pedestrian-only street with her wife Janet Meyer. But it took her quite a while to get settled on the West Coast. Shine was a New Yorker for decades, and though Meyer works in L.A. as a film producer, they hopscotched back and forth. The red-eye commute couldn't last forever. I'd be sort of bi-coastal for 20 years while my kids were still in school, Shine says, speaking from a home not far from Abbott Kinney Boulevard. At a certain point, I realized I was no longer really excited by all the excitement of New York. After her mother died in 2020 and the COVID-19 pandemic sent everyone home, Shine began to think about a novel that would portray a different kind of New York growing, uh, growing enchanted by the neighborhood and not just the, the, the Venice of today, but also the lower slunk version of decades past. But long before Shine's, uh, Shine's story opened, uh, opened out onto an overflowing, overlooked history, an often overlooked history, the World War II era, where refugee artists including Thomas Mann and Arnold Schoenberg made Los Angeles a kind of uh, mid-Europa mid in exile. Kunstler's in Paradise brings 20-something Julian Kunstler to Venice as a more contemporary sort of expat. His non-agenarian grandmother and her devoted housekeeper, Agatha, are housebound by the pandemic, and Julian's parents sent him west to help his grandmother, but also perhaps to end his aimless dithering on the East Coast. I know a lot of these young men who are at a, at a somewhat awkward stage, like uh, Trollope's Hobbleoy, caught somewhere between childhood and adulthood, says Shine. My love for that stage comes from raising two wonderful young men. Although I'm pretty careful not to write about them, I don't want to steal all of their material. The story opens, however, in 1939, when 11-year-old Selamia Mamie Kunstler, Julian's grandmother, lands in Los Angeles with her family. The sophisticated Kunstlers, German for artists, have fled Hitler's Vienna and arrived just as the Nazis invaded Poland. On the day the world changes, Mamie takes, an, takes in a new world through her car window, a world that today in many ways no longer exists. 
People just did what they wanted back then, Shine explains. There were houses with Tourette's places designed to look like castles or farmhouses, and you never knew that w uh, what would be on which corner. And you had all those places that were completely fanciful, like the brown derby built in the actual shape of a hat. Then there are Mamie's fellow emigres, the Kunstlers of the Pacific. All these brilliant people, conductors and composers and writers and artists, ended up in L.A., and I was completely fascinated reading about them, says Shine. But I didn't want to write a straight historical novel that might become very fussy. Besides, one of the wonderful things about writing novels is you can do the research until you've stopped understanding or gotten bored. Shine pursued a master's degree in medieval history at the University of Chicago, but dropped out and skulked away to New York. I was the worst historian, she says. She also came late to L.A.'s artistic legacy. For too long, Shine admits she was a prejudiced New Yorker who felt that L.A. was a cultural wasteland and that it had no history. Wrong. But what wound up interesting me even more was that when these people came uh, from Europe, they didn't always experience success. Schoenberg, expressionist composer, thought of himself as one of the most important figures in modern music. But in L.A., he can't even get arrested, let alone get famous. The Austrian did end up teaching at USC and UCLA before there were even standalone music departments, influencing generations of composers. He appears in Mamie's stories as this man whose beautiful mid-century modern house remains an important part of the cityscape. The book establishes a subtle parallel between Shine's sets of refugees, those in the 1930s watching Europe burn from, the, from afar, and those weathering the pandemic as it ravages the East Coast. One day after isolation began, I was sitting in our Venice garden, uh, smelling the jasmine and watching hummingbirds and butterflies, Shine recalls. It was very quiet, no cars on the road, no planes in the skies, a sort of eerie peacefulness. Meanwhile, when I would talk to people in New York, there were sirens in the background, day and night. She pauses for a moment. I'm not trying to compare the pandemic to the Holocaust. They are completely different. But I do know that guilt of exile, the feeling when you're safe and the world you love is blowing up and falling apart and dying. Mamie, like a 90-something Sherhazade, uh, reels Julian in again and again with her stories, knowing just how, to, how much to tell to keep him interested and by her side. She doles out photographs and anecdotes with a panache of a high-end pusher, saving one of the most remarkable for the end. A story about reclusive Greta Garbo, whom she and her grandfather meet on the beach. Kunstler's is Shine's twelfth novel, but she admits that with its time shifts and deliberate unfurling, it was particularly tricky to collaborate. I don't outline my book, she says. I'm just thinking, what happened to Mamie next? How will Julian relax? I do think that sort of gradual layering of various details became part of the structure. Her loose process has its advantages. It always results, she says, in a sort of peripheral character who ends up being my favorite. In this book, that's Agatha, whose origins are hazy, but who never lets her irascible employer down and always has a handbag dangling from her forearm. 
I had no idea what it was going what was going on with Agatha until the end, but she became more and more important to me as the manuscript progressed. She could have been a throwaway character. Instead, she's more of a load-bearing wall. Shine is not the type of writer to schedule herself a minimum page count per day. She can go three months without writing a word. But she is thinking about a book, a sort of a, a Buddenbrooks thing, referencing a man's masterpiece work written before his stint in the Pacific Palisades. Shine's homage of sort is about a mercantile family in Bridgeport, Connecticut, whom she grew up and where her father owned a lumber company. It's very close to my home, and a lot of it will be based on my family's fortunes, she says. I'll see if I can pull it off. Meanwhile, she's trying, after two decades of commuting and three years of isolating, to learn more about the city she now calls home. I had to train myself to read the LA Times instead of on the East Coast papers. It's only been a few years. Old habits die hard. She confesses that she only recently learned the exact coordinates of the San Fernando Valley. No wonder I got lost all the time. When I do leave the, this neighborhood, it's Google Maps. Check it twice. It's always an adventure. It's taken me a long time to feel like I live here, but she studied up. I do now. That was Finding Refuge in L.A. by Bethany Patrick from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, March 12, 2023. Patrick is a freelance critic, podcaster, and author of the forthcoming memoir, Life B. Okay, we have this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 16, 2023. Great theater critic, complicated father. Richard Gilman is the subject of a memoir by his daughter. His student gives it a read by Charles McNulty, theater critic. Whether it's possible to separate the artist from the art is a question that has grown more heated in recent years as the atrocious behavior of men, powerful white men in particular, is no longer being condoned as readily as it has been for millennia. In her new book, The Critic's Daughter, a memoir about her father, literary and theater critic Richard Gilman, Priscilla Gilman, extends the discussion by considering whether it's possible to separate the critic from the criticism. She attempts to honor the intellectual legacy of her father who died in 2006 while painting a portrait of him that is both loving and gimlet-eyed about the, his virtues and deficiencies. The book is her story about a brilliant yet profoundly flawed parent, and her motive in telling it seems to be in part self-therapy. Miss Gilman takes pains to capture his complexity in a memoir that's neither con condemnatory nor exculpatory. She includes excerpts from his brilliant writing, though without much context for their inclusion. But the bigger problem is that she doesn't rigorously interrogate her own worldview. The framework uh, through which she views her father, a framework embedded with assumptions about money, class, and prestige, is insufficiently examined. Her sins are the sins of loving too much and in too self-abnegating -abne a fashion. The Cordelia, the Cordelia to her father's leer, she is inevitably the sad, noble heroine of every anecdote she tells. But the cramped Philella uh, perspective treats the life of a critic as though it were a figure in a, child, in a child's dollhouse.
To live is to battle with trolls in heart and mind. To write is to sit in judgment of oneself. These words from playwright Henrik Ibsen were often quoted by her father in the classroom, and they, are di and they diagnose precisely where her memoir falls short. I felt squeamish reading about Gilman's ugly divorce from Lynn Nesbitt, Miss Gilman's hard-driving literary agent mother. His daughter's anxious account of his fetish for dominatrix fantasies, a subject he doesn't shy away from in Faith, Sex, Mystery, his memoir about his conversion to Catholicism and subsequent departure from the church left me feeling as though I were invading the privacy of a relative or former therapist. I'm not related to Gilman, and I've never pretended to be a patient on his couch. I was, however, his student for five years in the 1990s. My name is included in the book's acknowledgments with other former students and colleagues. Gilman served as my advisor during my graduate studies at the Yale School of Drama, where he was co-chair of the Dramatur Dramatur Dramaturgy and Dramatic Criticism Department. But more than that, he provided the intellectual foundation for my education in the theater. His voice still resounds within me, urging me to hold fast to the artistic values he painstakingly articulated and promulgated to generations of students who have come to share his conviction as he writes in the foreword to a seminal book, The Making of Modern Drama, that great plays can be as relevatory of human existence as novels or poems. A champion of drama as a source of consciousness Gilman challenged the entrenched anti-intellectualism of the American theater. In a culture of fractured attention spans, devalued expertise, and bullying groupthink, it is salutary to recall the example of a critic whose allegiance wasn't to the commercial or ideological marketplace, but to the art form he served. A dance critic was recently befouled with dog poop by a German ballet director unhinged by a bad review. Gilman understood the necessity for a destructive criticism, the title of one of his indelible essays, the way a gardener understands the necessity for a w for wedding. His work was not a branch of publicity, even as it sought to elevate the truly excellent from the meritorious. A hard-bitten New York intellectual of the old stripe, Gilman spoke with a smoker's rasp, enjoyed a drink, and com uh, comported himself like a rackish pirate in a denim jacket. He was not the only Yale faculty member to know, known to have had affairs with his grad students, but his behavior had cleaned up by the time I arrived at the school. There is no defense for the slovenly ethics of the past. The Yale School of Drama, now the David Geffen School of Drama, is a different institution today, more egalitarian, less homogeneous, and a good deal more contentious, conscientious about maintaining order and safety. Students are more empowered and faculty and members are no longer held up as demigods. This is all for the best, but I am nonetheless grateful for having been exposed to Gilman's unadulterated critical sensibility. His pedagogy offered something that wasn't widely available elsewhere. He taught students how to think. His criticism workshops, a curricula staple for budding critics and dramaturgs, were an experience in literary vivisection, as he homed in on every cliché and woolly idea that in, week's student, in that week's student essay. 
Fuzzy writing, he contended, was the result of fuzzy thinking. Hyperbole offended him. Praise had to be earned in language that was proportionate. If you feel as strongly as you claim, you ought to paint an honest picture and not resort to the breathless language of blurbs. Gilman had made a name for himself as a critic at Commonweal and served as drama critic for the news for Newsweek and then the Nation. His demanding prose style was forged in an era when small circulation quarterlies still had some cachet, but the days of partisan review were dwindling. And though he recommended me to uh, to an editor at the Village Voice, where I found a publishing home, he was preparing us for contemporary job fairs. There were limits to his scope. He was anti-theory at a time when graduate students in the arts and humanities could not afford to be oblivious of Foucault, Derrida in the army of faddish postmodernists. My incorporation of queer theory into my dissertation put me on thin ice. Jargon was the enemy, but graduate students dreaming of tenure would have to search elsewhere at the university not to be shut out of the discourse a word he had no doubt would have he would have found lazy. His name may no longer be widely recognized, but his legacy shouldn't be underestimated. Gilman, along with Robert Brunstein and Eric Bentley, created a space in American culture for serious dramatic criticism aimed not at academic specialists or anxious cultural consumers, but educated readers hungry for a deeper aesthetic engagement with the with the theater. In Eludicating the way Ibsen, Strindberg, and Chekhov established the foundation of modern drama, he opened minds to the revolutionary accomplishments of Parandello, Brecht, and Beckett. His philosophical orientation made him especially receptive to the avant-garde, but he admired uh, professionalism, discipline, and a skill above all, and had little patience for the self-deluding rhetoric and, and empty political gestures of theatrical cults. As faith, sex, mystery movingly attest, Gilman was a seeker. Theater was part of a spiritual journey, but not in any way woo-woo way. Uh, the relationship between the material and spiritual realms paralleled for him the relationship between form and content in great works of art. One of Gilman's truisms is a play that, like Hamlet, isn't paraphrasable. You can't reduce a masterpiece to a message. Form isn't a container for content. The, uh, they work in tandem to communicate what only the drama in its full substance can convey. The larger lesson to be drawn is that simple binaries in art as in life falsify reality. The theatrical subject that interested Gilman most was being, consciousness, uh, the, uh, the awareness of the self, the experience of time, and the inescapable plight of radical uncertainty. As an art form in which human beings are incarnated, drama is a natural conduit for metaphysics and ontology. Gilman recognized that what Sophocles was pursuing uh, in Oedipus Rex and Shakespeare in King Lear, Chekhov was similarly exploring in The Three Sisters and Beckett in Waiting for Godot. For Gilman, the life of an artist was always subordinate to the work. He was disdainful of the mania for, blog, for biography. Criticism, in his view, brings us deeper into the mind of a playwright than an account of bad marriages and professional setbacks and triumphs. 
In his magnum opus, Chekhov's plays an opening into eternity, he locates the Russian playwright's spiritual vision in the details and decision of his art. He doesn't ignore the, the man, but he prioritizes the part of him that endures, that is worthy of enduring. To read Chekhov via Gilman is to come into communion not only with Chekhov's soul, but with Gilman's own. The critic's daughter puts Gilman in the spotlight, but for reasons he likely would have found objectionable had the author been anyone other than his beloved daughter. Great writers transcend their personal squalor. We shed our, our sicknesses in our books, declares D.H. Lawrence. Gilman quotes these words in his Village Voice tribute to Jean Genet, and they apply equally well to his superlative criticism. That was Great Theater Critic, Complicated Father by Charles McNulty, Theater Critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, March 16, 2023. All right, now let's go to a movie review featuring a Jewish Jewish actor, actually, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 16, 2023, Time to Ground Superheroes of Shazam. The stale approach of this sequel pushes the budding franchise into stratosphere of cringe by Katie Walsh. There's an exasperating trend in superhero movies that has reached the end of its shelf life and needs to be chucked. Back in the 2010s, a light touch seemed fresh and funny with quippy, ironic dialogue popularized by Joss Whedon's The Avengers that felt revolutionary and snarky, motor-mouth performances from stars such as Ryan Reynolds in Deadpool that were downright radical. But one whiff of the Shazam sequel, Shazam! Fury of the Gods, and you find that this over, overly jockey approach is well past its expiration date. The DC movie is exceeding, exceedingly grating, labored and annoying, and that's in large part due to star Zachary Levi's utterly confounding performance as Shazam, the superhero alter ego of teenager Billy Batson as her angel. In 2019, 2019's Shazam, also directed by David F. Sanderberg, there was something rather charming about Levi's boyish performance a grown man playing Superman with all of the aw-shucks wonders of a teenager. In the four years hence, the shtick has grown old, or Levi is simply laying it on too thick, adopting a vaguely urban accent, speech-peppered with a tired sling, trippin', and an extra randy attitude. The biggest problem with his performance is that it's completely out of step with that of his younger counterpart, which was also an issue in the first, in the first film. Angel's Billy is a more grounded, even anxious teenager, worrying about his large multicultural foster family and his role in it as he gets older. When he shazams into Shazam, thanks to the magic granted, uh, granted him by a wizened, a, wizened, a wizened wizard, Demon Hunsal, the Levi version of Billy suddenly becomes bratty, arrogant, and mouthy. Levi's performance may be the crown jewel of a nonsense swirling at the center of Shazam! Fury of the Gods, but the film around it doesn't help matters. It is ugly, noisy, and poorly written. The script is by Henry Gaydon and Fast and Furious writer Chris Morgan, which is a shame because director Sandberg has churned out some reliably inspired genre gems like Lights Out and Annabelle Creation. But Fury of the Gods, which boasts an almost laughably random cast, Helen Mirren, Lucy Liu and Rachel Zegler 
by a trio of goddess sisters, the daughters of Atlas, is excruciating. We know this film is set in Philadelphia only because Shazam and his superhero pals have been dubbed the Philadelphia Fiascos, and Luz Calypso plants a golden apple that sprouts mythological beasts in the middle of Citizens Bank Park, where the Phillies play. A wolf blitzer, Chiron, uh, uh, reading Philadelphia Trapped Under a Strange Dome, is the only true laugh of the movie, an unintentional one at that. Despite these references, there is no sense of place. The action mostly takes place during a strangely golden-hued magic hour on top of buildings, and there's a portal to a green-screen nightmare, uh, nightmare mythical realm where the goddess of sisters do their evil business. Visually, it is a mess, with computer-generated imagery that looks straight out of a CW show. Everything is flat and framed in medium shots, missing the dark cityscape aesthetic of the first film, which jived with the ethos of modern mythology. The juvenile tone focused on a family-friendly story and painfully explicated themes and lessons clearly indicated that this film is aimed at a younger audience. But just because this movie is for kids doesn't mean it has to be this bad. It may be a shoddily made Skittles at masquerading its superhero riff as a superhero riff, but it's Levi's performance that sends it straight into the stratosphere of cringe. Here's hoping that this is not only Shazam's last outing, but the nail in the coffin of the smarmy superhero as well. That was Time to Ground Superheroes of Shazam by Katie Walsh from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Thursday, March 16, 2023. Walsh is a Tribune News Service film critic. It's called Shazam! Fury of the Gods, rated PG-13 for sequences of action and violence and danger, running time 2 hours 10 minutes, and it's already playing in general release. All right, now here is something from a website called Ali Hip Hop, and this is called Jim Jones Hales Drake as the Greatest Rapper of All Time by London Jen, March 13, 2023. Jim Jones says Drake's unparalleled hit-making record makes him the greatest rapper of all time. The Harlan native is the latest artist to weigh in on the debate following Billboard Vibe's recent GOAT rappers list. I would say that he's the greatest of all time, Jim Jones declared of Drake during an interview with Complex. There's a lot of people from the beginning and people that invented hip-hop, I know. The relevancy that he keeps showing year after year, hit after hit, record after record. Any song that he has put out has seemed to go multiple a multi multiple platinum. That's never happened before in history. He added, I just gotta give credit where credit is due, and I'm not taking anything away from nobody else. Jim Jones also recognized Hobbes' astronomical achievements in music. However, according to the Dipset member, Jay-Z has moved on from music, whereas Drake is thriving. What Jay-Z has done to this game is astronomical. He's like Michael Jordan for what he has put on and what he has done since he came in the game and where he's at right now, he explained. But Jay exited music a long time ago. And that space, that void, I don't know if it's a void, but Drake has not exited and he's still going strong to this day and it doesn't seem like he's, uh, he's stopping no time soon. 
Elsewhere in the interview, Jim Jones reflected on the love Drake showed the diplomats when he bought them on stage while performing at the iconic Apollo Theater earlier this year. Drake has a lot of respect for us coming up listening to dipset music, so he explained. So it was just a full circle moment. You know what I mean? It was dope. He gave us our flowers and uh, that a lot of people don't give us, that we deserve. Meanwhile, Jim Jones dropped his fourth album in a little over a year last week. He joined Hit Mecca on my, Back in My Prime, which includes features from Ty Dolla, so, Ty Dolla Sign, Jeremiah, Stefan Don, and more. And that was Jim Jones hails Drake as the greatest rapper of all time. And this is by London Jen from uh, AliHipHop.com for March 13th, 2023. All right, now here's a special article from MeTV.com. MeTV is a cable station, a nostalgia station, which stands for Memorable Entertainment Television. This is called Bernie Koppel Shut Down When the Love Boat Ended. I said, come on, wake up. There's life that's still going on. From the MeTV staff, November 2nd, 2022. When a successful show ends, there are a few people who can take the news hard. Of course, fans are bummed out about never seeing any new episodes of their favorite show again. However, the cast and crew are most affected by the change. This was the case for the Love Boat actor Bernie Koppel, who played Dr. Adam Bricker and is one of the few cast members who appeared on every episode in the show's nine seasons. There are a few reasons why the actor shut down when the love boat ended. Before snagging this crucial role in his career, the writer and actor went through a bit of discouragement when he couldn't find gigs. Koppel also had an agent that would often send him to audition for roles that were already filled. To survive in Los Angeles, he had to drive taxis and attempt to sell vacuums. Life started to take a turn for the best when he got a minor part on a CBS daytime soap opera called The Brighter Day. The role was the beginning of his successful acting journey that spans 50-plus years. The Love Boat was the longest-running role Koppel had, providing him with the opportunity to live the Hollywood dream. Yet, when it ended, reality became different. In an interview with the Television Academy, he detailed how rough it was for him to move on for a while. I shut down when it was over. It was actually 13 years because we did 10 years and then three two-hour specials, he began. You think this is going to go on forever. I mean, they flew us first class all over the world on 747s. Koppel spoke about the perks of being on a show like The Love Boat. He said the cast had particular advantages when flying. They didn't have to wait in lines to be checked in and were taken uh, to first class lounges. He joked that since they weren't treated like regular passengers, they probably could have gotten away with murder. All of that changed when the show ended. And then you come down to the real world, and it's a very different place. So I shut down for a while, the actor revealed, and then I started doing plays. I said, come on, wake up, there's life that's still, go there's life that's still going on. So it can be a challenge when something like that ends. He also spoke about how some actors can't find the motivation to keep going after a show goes off. There's a list of people that when their show goes off, they go off. But being a mature adult, I said, okay, time to move on. That's over with. Couples said that the love boat is a gift that keeps on giving and will always be a part of him. 
Even though it took him some time to move on, his success continued. He even appeared on eight episodes of CBS's sitcom Be Positive in 2021. That was Bernie Koppel Shut Down When the Love Boat Ended by the MeTV staff from MeTV.com, November 2nd, 2022. All right, and now we're going to read some articles from the L.A. Jewish Home for March 2nd through the 15th, 2023, Volume 1, Number 10. And uh, this is from the Week in News section. We start off with this global news article, Biden Visits Kiev, Author Unknown. Americans were surprised to learn that their president had secretly slipped into Kiev last Monday for a historic visit to showcase U.S. solidarity with the people of Ukraine. Of course, the visit came with a price of half a billion dollars in military aid. During the trip, President Joe Biden declared that Russian leader Vladimir Putin was dead wrong in his underestimation of Western support and resolve. It's been almost a year since Russia invaded, Russia invaded Ukraine, and Biden's visit came four days before the infamous anniversary. Although the American people were not told of Biden's visit in advance, officials made sure to notify Russia to ensure the president's safety. This is the first time in recent years that an American president traveled to an active war zone not controlled by the U.S. military. Arriving in Kiev after a 10-hour overnight train ride from Poland, Biden appeared with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the heavily fortified presidential palace. Ukraine's resilience over the last year, Biden proclaimed, had been astounding, and the whole world sees it. The U.S., he said, would support Kiev as long as it takes to repeal, repel the Russian invasion, which began February 24, 2022. That dark night one year ago, the world was literally bracing for the fall of Kiev, perhaps even the dead end, perhaps even the end of Ukraine, said Biden, clad in a suit with a blue and yellow tie, the color of the Ukrainian flag. One year later, Kiev stands, then Ukraine stands, democracy stands, the world stands with you. Zelensky met with the Western leader while wearing his trademark khaki sweatshirt and pants. The two leaders hugged when they met, and Zelensky said it was a great honor that Biden had come to visit. In a statement issued by the White House after his arrival, Biden said the U.S. would make another delivery of critical equipment to Ukraine, including artillery, ammunition, anti-armor systems, and air surveillance radars. That was global. That was Biden visits Kiev, author unknown, from the Global News section, and this is an Israeli news section story. 150,000 Ukrainians make Aliyah, author unknown. More than 15,000 Ukrainians have immigrated to Israel since the outbreak of the war in Ukraine a year ago, according to government figures released Sunday. The immigration statistics put out by the quasi-governmental Jewish Agency for Israel and the Ministry of Aliyah and Integration come five days ahead of the first anniversary of the, of the war which shows no signs of ending. This is one of the largest rescue operations in history, said Major General uh, Doron Almog, chairman of the Jewish Agency. It is the epitome of the notion of all of Israel being responsible for one another. Our sense of mutual responsibility serves as a moral compass that has guided us through history and will continue to do so. 
The new immigrants arrived into Israel with the help of the Jewish Agency and the cooperation of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, which established 18 emergency aliyah centers in countries bordering Ukraine immediately after the Russian invasion. At these centers, the refugees found safe haven. Once they arrived in the Jewish state, they were placed in hotels across the country as part of the government's Operation Coming Home, which was led by the Ministry of Aliyah and Integration. The Ukrainian immigrants include many young people who enrolled in special absorption programs, mothers with young children, and senior citizens, including hundreds of Holocaust survivors. World Jewry, led by the Jewish Federations of North America and Karen Hesod, immediately came to the support of the Ukrainian Jewish community, along with help from Christian Friends of Israel. Tens of millions of dollars were raised in an unprecedented effort to assist the rescue and immigration process. When the war broke out in Ukraine, I traveled as a member of Knesset to the refugee centers in Moldova to observe the Aliyah process of those who fled the conflict zones firsthand, said lawmaker Ulfer Sofer. As the Minister of Aliyah and Integration, I saw the importance of welcoming the Olim upon their arrival in Israel and assisting in the integra their integration into Israeli society. A total of 75,000 Olim arrived in Israel in 2022, with the most coming from Russia, followed by Ukraine. It was the largest number of new immigrants to arrive in 23 years. That was 150,000 Ukrainians make Aliyah, author unknown, from the Israel News section, and both of those are from the Week in News section. Okay, continuing with the Week in News section, we go to National News Stories. This is called Ohio Metal Plant Explosion, author unknown. An explosion tore through an Ohio metals plant last week, scattering molten metal and debris that rained down on neighboring buildings and killed one person, Stephen Mullins, 46. Thirteen others were injured, mostly with burns, officials and witnesses said. The blast sent smoke billowing into the sky that could be seen for miles around the I. Schumann & Company metals plant about 50 miles southeast of Cleveland. Thirteen people were taken to hospital, many of them with burn wounds. At least one was in critical condition, and one was pulled from the debris. All of those injured were on site, the falling debris uh, having spared those at neighboring businesses. Many of those at the plant were in shock. For now, the cause of the explosion is unknown. The damage to the plant is significant. We will work alongside investigators in their search for answers as part of our commitment to Northeast Ohio, where we have been operating for more than 100 years, I. Schumann & Company, which produces copper, brass, and bronze, allo bronze alloys, said in a statement. The explosion was about 70 miles northeast of, uh, northwest of East Palestine, Ohio, where a train loaded with toxic chemicals derailed a few weeks ago, causing a fire that sent a cloud of smoke over the town and forced thousands of people to evacuate. That was Ohio Metal Plant Explosion, author unknown, and this one is called Alligator Found in Brooklyn, author also unknown. A large four-foot-long alligator was pulled out of a lake in a New York City park on Sunday. The gator was discovered in Brooklyn's Prospect Park, the city's second-largest public park. It was spotted by maintenance workers around 8 a.m. on Sunday morning swimming in Prospect Park Lake. The park's enforcement patrol and the urban park rangers were able to quickly rescue the animal, which they said was in poor condition when they found it. 
After being transported to the animal care center of NYC for treatment, the workers nicknamed the animal Godzilla. It will now reside in the Bronx Zoo for rehabilitation. Godzilla is only four feet long, but American alligators can grow to be over 12 feet long. Cold-blooded reptiles generally reside in warm waters. Officials believe that Godzilla was an abandoned pet. In addition to the potential danger to park goers that this could have caused, uh, releasing non-indigenous animals or unwanted pets can lead to the elimination of native species and unhealthy water quality, a Parks Department spokesperson said. In this case, the animal was found very lethargic and possibly cold-shocked since it is native to warm tropical climates. Releasing animals inside a New York City park is illegal, and park rangers respond to about 500 reports of abandoned animals each year. Godzilla is not the first ab abandoned alligator found in the New York City metro area this year. In January, a man in Neptune, New Jersey, discovered an alligator inside a large plastic bin outside his home. The New Jersey alligator was rescued on a cold January night and brought to a new home at the Cape May Zoo. And that was alligator found in Brooklyn. Alright, and also from the Week in News section, a national news story. R. Shmuel Kamenetsky urges public to help save Jewish children in public school. Author unknown. Currently, there are countless Jewish children registered in public schools who are unaware that they have the opportunity to receive a Torah education. As a result, they may lose their Jewish identity forever if they continue in the public school system. It is imperative that we raise awareness and take action to rescue future generations. Nehomas is Yisrael, a nonprofit organization, is taking a proactive stance to address this issue by offering financial assistance for yeshiva education. The organization's mission is to ensure that every Jewish child has access to a genuine Torah education regardless of financial limitations. If you are aware of a child who fits this profile, please notify their parents about Nehomas Yisrael Initiative. You can also contact Nekomas Yisrael directly with the information. By spreading the word, you can contribute to saving an entire generation. The registration deadline for the new year is approaching, and the Rosh Yeshiva has urgently appealed to Kalal Yisrael to help spread this crucial message. With your support, Nekomas Yisrael will continue to rescue Jewish children from public schools and place them in yeshivas where they can receive a quality Torah education. Over the last 29 years, Nechomas Yisrael, led by Rabbi Asher Friedman Nechomas, Yisrael founder, has successfully rescued nearly 30,000 children from public schools and provided them with a genuine Torah education by collaborating with 196 schools to place these children. Join the cause and help preserve the future of Jewish identity. In this zechas of helping Hashem's children, May you merit seeing a great deal of nachas from your own children. For more information on Nechomas Israel, visit their website www.collect.live slash Nechomas, N-E-C-H-O-M-A-S dash Yisrael or contact them directly at 718-851-0340 via call or text. That was R. Shemuel Kamensky. Kamensky urges public to help save Jewish children in public school, author unknown. We go now to what is called a That's Odd news story. 
and this is called Better Late Than Never. Author unknown. The Postal Service has a bad reputation, and sometimes it really earns that standing. Recently, a letter was delivered to its final destination on Hamlet Road in South London more than a hundred years after it was sent. We noticed that the year on it was 16, so we thought it was 2016, Finley Glenn told CNN. Then we noticed that the stamp was a king rather than a queen, so it felt like it couldn't have been 2016. Although the letter arrived at the property a few years ago, Glenn only recently took it to the local historical society so they can research it further. The envelope has a one-pence stamp bearing the head of King George V. The letter was sent in the middle of World War I, more than a decade before Queen Elizabeth II was born. Once we realized it was very old, we thought that it was okay to open up the letter, said Glenn, 27. Under the Postal Service's Act 2000, it is a crime to open mail not addressed to you, but Glenn said he can only apologize if he's committed a crime. As a local historian, I was amazed and delighted to have the details of the letter passed on to me, said Stephen Oxford, editor of the Norwood Review. The correspondence is a picture of what life was like a century ago. The letter was addressed to my dear Katie, who, according to Oxford, was the wife of local stamp magnate Oswald Marsh. It was written by Christabel Menel, the daughter of a tea merchant, of tea merchant Henry Tuke Menel, while her family was on holiday in Bath in western England. In the letter, Menel writes, I've been most miserable here with a very heavy cold, yet it remains a mystery as to how the letter arrived at Glen's flat. According to the Postal Service, we appreciate that people will be intrigued by the history of this letter from 1916, but have no further information on what might have happened. The check is in the mail. That was better late than never. And there's another, author unknown, here's another That's Odd News uh, story. This is called Going Nowhere. Passengers on a flight from New Zealand to New York spent 16 hours in the air and ended up going nowhere. The Air New Zealand nonstop flight from Auckland to New York had been in the air for eight hours last Thursday and was about 2,000 miles from California when the airline received a word that an electrical fire at, the, at New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport had led to Terminal 1 being closed. A decision was made to, return, to turn the plane around and return to Auckland, where it landed 16 hours after departing. Diverting to another U.S. port would have meant the aircraft would remain on the ground for several days, impacting a number of other scheduled services and customers, an airline spokeswoman told the New Zealand Herald. The airline apologized to the passengers and said those aboard the flight would be booked on the next available flights to New York. What could be worse than air travel? Traveling in the air without really traveling. That was going nowhere off the unknown from That's Odd News section. All right, now we go to the Around the Community section, starting with this one. Near Aria Melav Malka celebrates upcoming Rosh Hodesh Adar, author unknown. On Motzi Shabbos Parsha's Mishpotim, Yeshivas near Aria in Valley Village held an uplifting event for the Talmidim 7th and 8th grade boys and their fathers. Beginning the evening with Havrusa learning, they spent an hour preparing for a short shur delivered by the Rosh Yeshiva rabbi Yohanan Weiner related to Purim. 
the cold Torah emanated from the base Midrash was impressive. Following Rabbi Weiner's interactive shiur, a delicious pizza Meliav Malka was enjoyed by all. The special guest of the evening, Joy Newcomb, arrived and treated the boys to a ruach-filled hours of kumzitz, singing, and libidig dancing. The event was an incredible prelude to Hodesh Adar, an uplifting, inspirational event leaving the Talmudim energized for the coming months. That was Nir Arya Meliav Malka celebrates upcoming Rosh Hodesh Adar, author unknown. This next one is called Link Kolel, hosts special pre perm fun day for kids, author unknown. On Sunday, February 19, the youth division of the Link Kolel hosted a special day of enjoyable activities for children. First off, a magician had the children enthralled with all kinds of fun tricks. Then, in honor of Purim, Mrs. Dina Ram, Link's ever-creative youth director, organized a wacky hat contest. Children came in wearing their silliest hats and then decorated them with humorous stickers. Delicious refreshments were served to top off the afternoon. And that was Link Kolel, host special pre-prom fun day for kids, author unknown. We go on to this one, Mahan L.A. honors Rabbi and Mrs. Riva, author unknown. On Rosh Hodesh Adar, over 250 guests filled Kaner Hall for a scholarship reception in support of Base Yaakov Makon L.A., honoring Rabbi Dovid and Mrs. Shifra Riva, and featuring guest speaker Rabbi Gershon Miller of Detroit. It was a magical evening of gratitude, inspiration, and simcha. The, Menah the Menahil Rabbi Yisrael Gordon was delighted with the reception's success. As the Rove and Rebetzin of Adas Orat Torah, founder, founders of our school, and with two daughters enrolled, Rabbi and Mrs. Reva were the natural choice to be Mahan's first honorees. The evening was opened by Rabbi Dr. Jason Weiner of Cedar Sinai Medical Center and Knesset Israeli Synagogue of Beverlywood. Rabbi Weiner's daughter Kayla was a member of Mahan's inaugural class and her and her Torah learning continues today in a Yerushalayim seminary. People told me I was crazy to send my daughter to a new school, Rabbi Weiner said. Now they ask me how I was so wise. In a captivating speech, Rabbi Gershon Miller, Rosh HaMosad of Beth Yehuda in Detroit, compared today's Jewish world to that of our grandparents. While we celebrate the exponential growth of Jewish communities and infrastructure, we are witnessing a decline in inner devotion and passion for our mitzvot. This is why we need schools like Mahan L.A. Mahan students Zippy Bloom and Yale Kleinman expressed their gratitude to Mrs. Riva for decades of teaching and guidance, but most of all, for being a living role model with whom they can have a lifelong relationship. The program ended with, a war with warm words from the Rosh Yeshiva of MBY, Rabbi Shalom Tindler Shlita. He compl complimented Rabbi Riva's non-judgmental personality, which makes every kind of Jew feel respected and valued. According to Rabbi Gordon, all in all, the reception did a beautiful job expressing the values and educational philosophy of Mahan L.A. That was Mahan L.A. honors Rabbi and Mrs. Riva, author unknown. All right, we go on to this one, Love and Groceries Cooks with Lucy's Lavish Kitchen, author unknown. 
On Tuesday, February 21st, Love and Groceries spent a delicious evening learning, how, uh, learning to make traditional Moroccan dishes from Lucy Benlolo of Lucy's Lavish Kitchen. Love and Groceries is a non-profit organization whose mission is to help alleviate the financial and emotional burdens felt by many of the widows, widowers, and their children in their local Los Angeles Jewish community. This event was hosted at the home of Miri Robin and included 25 lucky ladies who learned one-on-one -on -one from the chef. With her Moroccan, European, and Middle Eastern background, Lucy enjoys getting friends and family together to learn the secrets of traditional Moroccan cooking with specialty items that will enhance your Shabbat table. Her recipes are easy and fun to make, as well as delicious and healthy. Lucy generously donated a portion of her, of her proceeds from this event to support Love in Groceries. If you are interested in hosting a fun evening of cooking and laughing with your girl uh, with your girlfriends while shopping while supporting Love and Groceries, please reach out reach out to Lucy at Lucy's Lavish Kitchen or www.loveandgroceries.com to speak with a team member. Additionally, you may visit the website to sign up for the weekly Love and Groceries commitment of $25 to help support the LGN families. That was Love and Groceries Cooks with Lucy's Lavish Kitchen, author unknown, and this other one is called J Steam at Emek, author unknown. This week, Emek's third to fifth grade students participated in an after-school interactive J Steam program. J Steam, which stands for Sciences, Technology, Engineering, Art, and Mathematics, united with Judaic content and history made for a powerful and compelling combination at our project-based learning night. The evening is comprised of numerous experiments and the ways in which they connect to Judaism. Some of the stations featured were Force Plus Motion, marble painting representing Mitzvah Gorira's Mitzvah, uh, Paper Airplane Toss, Tefilos Soaring Up to Hashem, Paper Plate Maze, with Teshuva, a Jew can always find his way back to Hashem, coffee filter chromatography, judge every person favorably, and mini plants. To be Shabbat is a time to plant and always work to better ourselves. From the colorful displays and interactive exhibits to the exciting activities, each educator brought his or her unique talents and ideas to the forefront, and together they made the magic happen. The students were extremely involved and enthusiastic, and many parents com commented on the creative, engagement, engaging nature of the activities. J-STEAM PBL Night is one of EMEC's many annual events, which infuses students with 21st century learning and prepares them for a global economy. That was J-STEAM at EMEC, author unknown. And we move on to this one. Maurer Community and Awareness Event is a Success, author unknown again. We were th uh, so thrilled that over 250 people came out to Maurer's first community awareness event on Tu Bishivat to support Torah education for children with special needs here in Los Angeles. Thank you to everyone in the community for joining us and helping us make this important real vision a reality. We heard beautiful Devere Torah from Rabbi Mendel Zajak, Mara's Torah Studies Director, who shared that Tu Bishavat celebrates potential, 
like the potential of a seed and the potential of each Jewish child cultivated with Torah values. We were motivated as we heard from parents who shared what a special place Mawar is and how it has been life-changing for so many children and families in our community. To those who attended, thank you for joining us in supporting Mawar's mission. You are making such an incredible impact on the lives of our students. For more information about Mawar and our programs, please visit us at info at mawarla.com. And that was Mawar Community and Awareness Event is a Success. This next one is called Etta Has a Record Attendance at Job Affair. At Job Fair. Author Unknown. Etta, the premier service provider primarily assisting Jewish adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families in Los Angeles, hosted its biannual job fair on February 21st at its main office in North Hollywood. The event proved to be a resounding success, attracting a record number of job seekers who were provided with access to a wide range of employment opportunities, including one-on-one -on -one support at clients' homes, employment mentoring, teaching life skills, working at ETA's group homes, and providing assistance for day program participants. According to Jerry Biederman, ETTA's recruitment manager, this year's job fair yielded the highest number of pre-registrations we have ever had. Each of ETA's department managers were present to conduct on-the-spot interviews with the candidates. We also have several more interviews scheduled for candidates who were unable to attend, said Biederman. By, by far and away, the most impressive turnout of qualified candidates I've ever seen at one of our job fairs, com commented Alan Remmer, Director of Administration. The success of ETA's job fair is a testament to the surging demand for skilled and empathetic workers in the wake of the pandemic. ETA continues to seek out compassionate, qualified, and responsible staff year-round to meet the growing needs of its clients. As a nonprofit organization with a strong Jewish heritage, ETA remains committed to providing exceptional services to individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. If you or someone you know is looking for a fulfilling career that makes a positive impact, please visit ETTA.org slash job fair to upload a resume, obtain additional information, and discover more about this rewarding opportunity. That was Etta has record attendance at job fair, author unknown, and this next one is called Hachnaset Kala of Greater Los Angeles Night Inn, author unknown. We, the Fagi Dominitz Rabner Hachnaset Kala of Greater Los Angeles, celebrated their annual buffet reception on February 14. Nessa Synagogue was packed with hundreds of women from all over to enjoy a night in our town. The theme was brought about by showcasing local talent of all sorts. Activities were set up for all to enjoy from canvas painting, acrylic pouring, skin care pro uh, product making, chocolate, uh, chocolate mold creations, jewelry making, and tambourine design. Young and old enjoyed the delicious food generously provided by Mendel Goldman of MGM Catering and Elizabeth Hecht of Schwartz Bakery. The program featured some of LA's finest talent with speeches by R. Majeski and Nava Ben Moshi. The highlight of the evening was a kum kumzitz led by Rachel Rose. 
Girls of all ages fill the room with song and dance, creating an atmosphere of warmth, unity, and fun. The raffle prizes added to the excitement, and everyone had a fabulous time. The most rewarding aspect of the theme of In Town was that everyone there, vendors, artisans, and supporters alike, were able to take part in the special mitzvah to benefit our own In Town girls. There was Haknasit Kala of Greater Los Angeles Night Inn. Author is unknown. Right, this next one is called Meaningful Shloshim for Sharon Schenker. Author unknown. The Megillah describes Esther Hamalka by saying, Esther has the unique quality of Hain. She charmed everyone around her. Rebetzin Sharon Schenker exemplified this Mida as well. She had true Hain, C-H-E-I-N, and everyone who knew her loved her and felt loved by her. On Wednesday night, over 80 women gathered live as the Link Kolel in conjunction with the community shul commemorated the Shloshim of our dear teacher, mentor, and friend, Rebetzin Sharon Schenker. This moving tribute included Divrei Hisuk from Rav Baruch Yehuda Gradon, Rosh Kolel of Merkaz HaTorah, as well as Devre Torah, memories and reflections from some of Sharon's closest friends. Rebetzin Judith Cohen from the community shul led the women in Tehillim. We then had a chance to say Abraha out loud and respond Amen. Rebetzin Hannah Heller, longtime work partner of Jewish Women's Initiative, AISH Los Angeles and close friends shared the amazing hashgaha of how they of how then college student Sharon Gold won a raffle ticket to Eretz Yisrael and through this began her journey to Yiddishkeit that would impact so many. Next, Rabbi Gradon gave us a stirring approach to processing the tragic loss. Abby Simmons, a close friend of Sharon, spoke so touchingly of Sharon's impact on her. She spoke of her unique approach to hosting the legendary Schenker Shuffle, encouraging her guests to be vulnerable and meet new people. She spoke about her vitality and wisdom and how she made everyone feel like a million dollars. Rebetzin Batya Brander then gave beautiful insights into Megillah's Esther and so poignantly connected the life of and Midos of Esther Malka with Sharon. Mrs. Javi Jacobs, one of Sharon's closest friends spoke so eloquently about the deep significance of Sharon's petira that, uh, that was on Rosh Hodesh Shevat and her Shloshim at the start of Adar. Sharon embodied the growth of Shivat and the Simcha of Adar. Despite the indescribable pain which she experienced for years, we learned about her incredible internal Gevura strength that she harnessed to overcome her physical limitations. She would push forward to be her best self. At the end of the program, Mrs. Carly Becker, who coordinated the evening with Mrs. Brander, introduced an initiative to commemorate Sharon's legacy and to bring an alias Nishama. Participants were encouraged to notice the moments of godly love in their everyday experiences and to then record them in a mini journal. The inscription in these journals paid tribute to Rebetzin Sharon Schenker, who regularly modeled the importance of gratitude to the people around her and to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. We will sorely miss her warmth, wisdom, her kindness, and her friendship. May the Schenker family know no more sorrow, and may Sharon's legacy live on in our hearts and minds. 
through the lessons she gave us to, in her all too short but impactful life. That was Meaningful Shloshim for Sharon Shankar. And this next one is We Think the LAPD, author unknown. In the early morning of February 15th, a man was shot while walking to his car off of Pico Boulevard after morning prayers. At first, the police indicated it was not targeted but random. It was not until the next day when a second man was shot, also after leaving morning prayers off of Pico Boulevard, that the LAPD recognized that the first incident was indeed a targeted anti-Semitic attack and that both hate crimes were committed by the same person. Later on Thursday afternoon, Jamie Train, 28 years old, was arrested near Palm Springs. He is being charged with the federal hate crimes. He has a history of making anti-Semitic statements and personal threats to other Jews, including those he went to dental school with. He admitted to the police he, he searched for a kosher market to know where to find his targets and identified them by their head coverings. On Friday and Saturday, Pico Boulevard was heavily patrolled by the LAPD on horses and members of Magdan Axel. The Jewish community wants to thank the LAPD for the support and protection that the LAPD provides and to Magdan Am for their leadership in keeping our community safe and secure. That was We Thank the LAPD, author unknown, and this is called Yeshiva Yavne Has Week-Long Adar Celebrations, author unknown. The Adar spirit is in the air at Yeshiva Havne. Our students returned to school from a long weekend and retreated to a Rosh Hodesh to remember. Students were welcomed to the school by 8th grade leaders and accompanying staff in costume under a special Adar balloon arc. Throughout the day, each class was paid a visit by our 8th grade students who danced to music with them and gave out fresh hot hamantashen from our amazing PTA. On the second day of Rosh Hodesh, students were treated to a surprise dip in dots at lunch and continued to feel the simcha in the air. We look forward to our Yavina Spirit Week next week where students will enjoy singing and simcha throughout the week. Each day of the week presents another opportunity for individuality, individuality and ruach with days such as Crazy Hair Day, dressed like a, for a teacher for a day, and Yavna Swag Day. We are looking forward to a month of joy and a Purim Sameach. There was Yeshiva Yavna has week-long Adar celebrations, author unknown, and this other one is called Y-A-Y-O-E's annual presentation by Mr. Pistachio Farmer Itchaki, author unknown. And to Bishavad, our preschool and girls uh, in first, second, and third grade learned about trees in a unique way from a special sp sp pistachio farmer and Y-A-Y-O-E father, Mr. Nadav Itchaki of Nut Farmers and Fistchuk LLC. Mr. Itchaki has made his presence an annual event at Y-A-Y-O-E to teach us about the growing, harvesting, and processing of pistachio nuts and almonds here in California. Everyone asked thoughtful questions and was amazed at the complexity of the agricultural processes. Mr. Itchaki's colorful video highlighted the importance of Hashem's bracha of Geshem and the creation of honeybees for the successful cultivation of all agricultural crops. We learned that without this process, we would not enjoy many of the fruits and vegetables that we do, including chocolate. 
At a as a special treat, Mr. Ichaki presented each girl and Mora with a small peach, nectarine, or cherry sapling. We look forward to hearing updates on their growth. Thank you, Mr. Ichaki and the entire Ichaki family for your continued generosity and sharing your expect expertise for the yummy samples and for an interesting, relevant, and memorable way to, uh, to spend two bishivats. That was YAYOE's annual presentation by Mr. Pistachio Farmer Ichaki, author unknown. All right, and one more. This is called Epic Family Comes to Los Angeles, author unknown. The LA community was excited to celebrate its fifth year with EPIC Family, an international Knut organization that empowers and inspires parents and children. With the support of local Rabbanim and Menahalim, the EPIC Family mission is to provide Hizuk to the communities that they visit with added support and guidance in all aspects of parenting. EPIC Family spent two EPIC weeks in the greater Los Angeles area, including Hancock Park, Pico Robertson, the Valley, and Tarzana. In total, there were three Shabbatanim across 13 Kehilos, Sheurim, uh, and lectures for boys and girls at 10 yeshivas and schools, as well as a Motsei Shabbos Hinuk think tank panel attended by many and evening events at different homes in the community, empowering hundreds of parents and inspiring thousands of children. Events were held for every age, from elementary school age to parents of parents, grandparents, and everywhere in between. Epic Family provides additional resources for schools, teachers, and rabim, as well as offering in-house training and personnel sessions. They had a tremendous impact on the community with over 50 total engagements. In Israel, the organization continues to help Olim and their families who have decided to move to Israel to help them acclimate to their new home. They ensure that families have the necessary resources to educate and lead their families and have a successful transition by running a comprehensive and professional mentoring program for hundreds of boys and girls every year and guidance for parents by social workers and therapists. Many families enjoyed a private one-on-one -on -one sessions with leading Rabonim and personal advice specific to their unique situation. We are so happy and thankful that Epic Family decided to make Los Angeles one of its focus cities and we look forward to their continued efforts in helping provide additional resources for our community. That was Epic Family Comes to Los Angeles, author unknown, and those are all the articles under the Around the Community section. And now we go on to a section called the Torah Thought section. And this is called Parshat Zahor, Remembering Each Jew's Holiness, by Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, adopted for publication by Benjamin Wolf. The Indian of Parshat Zahor is to remember and we also find the Indian of remembering when the Torah talks about the Yerim the Tumim. She'll place both stones on the shoulders straps of the Ephod, stones of memory for Bnei Yisrael. And Aaron shall carry their names before Hashem on both his shoulders as a remembrance. Shemos 28.12 Aaron shall carry the names of Bnei Yisrael on the chosen Mishpat on his heart when he approaches the Kodesh as a constant remembrance before Hashem, Shemos 28:29, The Ramban explains that the letters of the Yorim Vitunim would light up. They were called, be, called Yorim because they would light up before the eyes of the 
Kohen Gadol and Tumim because his Ruach HaKodesh and Tamimus Halev, pureness of the heart, the, in the Megillah 12b, explains that the Megillah calls Mordecai ben Yar because he illuminated the eyes of Yisrael with his tefillah. Similarly, it calls him ben Yeshime because he was a son whose tefillos Hashim heard from the word Shema. Through Purim, we see a wondrous idea in the coach of tefillah. We see that uh, Kimu v. Kiblu did not just apply under, uh, to Torah, but to Tefillah as well. Up until the time of An Anshe Knesset Hagedola, everyone dabbled according to their heart's desire. The Anshe Knesset Hagedola, which existed around the time of Purim, established the letters, words, and form of davening that we were familiar with today. This is explained by R. Uh, Yonah's son David, the Rosh Yeshiva of Pahad Yitzhak and son-in-law of uh, Ar Hutner Sitol, who says that with the Yom Tov of Purim, Hashem revealed to us that Kedushas Haguf, the holiness of the bodies of Kilal Yisrael and of every single Jew. The Pasuk of Yesh Yesh Yeshaya 51.21 says, Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. The Gemara in Eruvin 68a uses this pasuk to state that since Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, Kalal Yisrael should be patur, exempt from tefillah davening, because we are drunk from the trial and tribulations of Gallus, exile, and we don't have the settled mind required to daven properly. Haman's decree was to destroy, to slay, and eradicate Esther 7.4, to simply destroy every Jewish body and eradicate them from this world. To Amalek, Haman, Hitler, and even the current Russia and Iran, the thoughts of a Jew do not make any difference. They do not care what the Jew is thinking. These Rishayim want to simply remove the physical presence of the Jewish people from this world. The Gemara, also in Megillah 9a, refers to the letters of Aleph Beis as Gufin bodies. The Anshe Knesset Hagedola, by arranging the letters or bodies into tefillos in the format that we now know, infused the tefillos with all of the kavanos and sodos, which enable a Jew to daven without even understanding the meaning of the words he is saying. When a Jew simply focuses on the form of the letters, he accomplishes wonders with the letters themselves. Purim revealed the Kedusha of the body of a Jew. After we read the Megillah, we sing Shoshanas Yaakov, in which we say, You have been their eternal salvation. On Purim, it was revealed that even when the body of a Jew is in a state of non-wine-induced drunkenness due to Gallus, the body, not just the Neshama, is eternal. On Purim, we learn that Jewish eternity is not exclusively for the soul, but for the body as well. The salvation of Purim extends to our holy bodies, which are themselves letters of the Torah. Hazal says, Yes, Shashim, Rebo, Osios, the Torah. There are 600,000 letters in the Torah, corresponding to the 600,000 Jewish people who lift Mitzrayim. Even though Joe might not know what he is saying when he davens, by saying the letters and words of the tefillos in the Seder established by the Anshe Knesses HaGedola, his tefillos light up and wondrous combinations are made. 
This is connected to the Indian of drinking a little bit on Purim. Even though we might be slightly drunk and might not be fully aware, the letters themselves are automatically combined in a wondrous way. This is the secret of the Urim Veumim, which, we, which were simply letters that were illuminated. It was only through the Ruach HaKodesh of the Kohen Gadol that he was able to see the proper combinations and understand the meaning behind the message. However, the coach of Amalek confuses us and causes us to misread the letters and prevents us from believing in the eternal remembrance of Kedushas Yisrael. Even though a Jew does not understand the tefillah he is saying, the tefillah is still filled with an unbelievable Kedusha and or. This is what was shown to us on Purim by Mordecai, who was a member of the Anshe Knesset Hagadola who eliminated our eyes with tefillah. In the paragraph that is recited after leaning the Megillah, it says, Hashem saw the tefillah. Usually tefillah is heard, but here, following the miraculous events of Purim, Hashem saw the osios, the letters of the tefillos, which Mordecai had illuminated in the eyes of Kalal Yisrael. It was a time when the Baal Shem Tov Ziah was traveling with his shamash and suddenly lost all his madregos of learning and Ruach HaKodesh. He turned to his shamash and said, Repeat after me. The Baal Shem Tov started reciting the letters of the Aleph base one by one, with the shamash repeating the letters after him. When they completed the entire Aleph base, the Baal Shem Tov's Ruach HaKodesh returned. The Baal Shem Tov's simple recitation of the letters of uh, the Aleph base had a wonderful result because the letters themselves are holy and powerful. I remember while on a trip to a Holocaust museum hearing someone read just the names of those lost in the, in the Hurban. Just hearing the names being read aloud had a profound effect on me. Now we can understand how the names of the Shavatim that were written on the Hoshen served as a constant remembrance before Hashem. The letters are the gufim of every single Jew that the Kohen Gadot wears on his shoulders and on his heart as a constant reminder of each and every Jewish guff no matter what state of awareness he's in. Hashem, the Kohen Gadol, takes every letter and every guff and constantly weaves wondrous combinations with them. The result is a magnifi mag magnificent garment of Kiddush Hashem that Hashem proudly wears. Everyone remembers that at Mishkan Shiloh there was the Kohen Gadol named Eli who misread the holy Jewish letter Guff of Hana. When Eli saw Hana in the Mishkan, her lips were moving, but no sound was coming out. According to the Gra, Eli inquired of the Urim Vitumim, but he misread the letters and re read Shikora drunk instead of Kehira uh, kosher. He said to her, You're a drunk. Leave the house of Hashem. Hana responded, No, my master. You are misreading the letters. The Ruach HaKodesh is not resting upon you. Eli misread Hana's letter Guth. Hana ultimately went on to give birth to Shemuel Hanavi, who cut off the head of Agag, king of Amalek. Shemuel, whose mother was misinterpreted as an unimportant guff, was the one who destroyed the king of Amalek, whose very coach, strength, and essence is misreading and destroying Jewish guffim. We are certain and trust that Hashem is Mitzarif and our osios for us even though we are in a state of drunkenness by lacking full awareness of the reality of life to our golas. We are confident and trust the, in the eternity of Yisrael. 
and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, Esther 9.28, we should be Zohe to see the final downfall of the Rishayim of, and the lifting up Kalel Yisrael, Bemehira Beyamenu, Amen. That was Parsha Zakor, Remembering Each Jew's Holiness, by Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, adopted for publication by Benjamin Wolf from the Torah Thoughts section. Rav Yoshev Moshe Weinberger Shileti is the founding Mora of Diashria Congregation Eish Kodesh in Widmere, New York, and serves as a leader of the new Mahina Emek Halamehak. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, Shalom and peace.